Well, there's often an excitement around arrivals, isn't there? The arrival of a new iPhone, the arrival of a new movie in a beloved franchise, the arrival of a baby, arrival of family visiting from interstate, uh, going to visit someone at the airport, the arrival of a new youth minister. Recently, my brother arrived from Germany to spend the summer with us here in Melbourne. Uh, He currently lives in Berlin after moving there to study 10 years ago. Now, um, uh, he has a family and uh, we haven't seen him for a very long time. In fact, five years ago was the last time that we saw him. Uh, So there was great anticipation of his arrival here in Melbourne. And because I haven't been taking any trips to Germany lately, I haven't had a chance to see him in the flesh in all that time. Now, it's nice to see my brother, but what made his arrival even more special was the fact that last year he became a father for the first time, and so he brought his five-month-old daughter uh, to come and visit and meet the family. And she is adorable. She's uh, at that stage where... Uh, She's just learnt to roll over onto her front from her back and she's very sociable and she loves company. Uh, So it was a great treat to see my brother and um, to meet his daughter for the first time. Speaking of family, back in January 2010, so 13 years ago, I was visiting my cousins in Adelaide and we all decided to go and see the new Avatar film. Uh, by director James Cameron. And if you haven't seen it, it's the story of human civilization travelling to another planet and displacing the indigenous population by mining their sacred, sacred sites and displacing uh, the population. But uh, eventually they retaliate and, and drive away the humans um, from their planet. Well, the movie was a huge success. And soon after, Cameron announced that six other Avatar films were in the pipeline with names such as Avatar, the Seedbearer, Avatar, the Tolkien Rider, Avatar, the Quest for Iwa, and Avatar, the Way of Water. Well, here we are in 2023, 13 years later, and just one of those films, uh, The Way of Water, have just been released. That's a big gap between films. For Avatar fans, that's a long-awaited arrival. Or more seriously, a few weeks ago, we celebrated the arrival of God into the world as a human child. At Christmas, we remember that Jesus arrived among us. And not only that, he lived as one of us, not as an imposter, but as a fully-fledged human being. And one day he will arrive a second and final time to bring in his kingdom in all its fullness. Psalm 24, which we just heard read, is about the arrival of God in his holy place to the joy and praise of his people. God's presence is a blessing that he gives to his people. And so we've got uh, an outline coming up on the screen for you now. Uh, We're going to take this in three parts. God enters his holy city. Everything belongs to God. And what kind of worshipper will receive a blessing? So as you can see, I'm beginning at the end. uh, And uh, so we can get some background on this psalm. And if you've got your Bible there, please open up 
to this psalm or look it up on your phone. So in the context of the psalm, God's place of dwelling, his holy place, is the temple in the city of Jerusalem. And there's this poetic imagery about the architecture of the temple itself being augmented and changed to accommodate God's entry. Let's take it from verse 7. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, so that the king of glory may come in. Now, these aren't the random and chaotic changes that you'll sometimes find in Harry Potter's boarding house. Uh, You never know where those moving stairs are going to shift to next at at Hogwarts. Now, these changes are purposeful, intentional, just as the the gaze of the worshippers is lifted up to look upon God's grandeur, so the doors of God's house are expanded to give him a fitting welcome. And for me, this calls to mind the words of Isaiah 40, a little later in the Old Testament. It says, Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. This kind of supernatural preparation, making way for God to come in and be with his people. Because the presence of God is a blessing. It's something to eagerly await and anticipate. And when God arrives, it's a cause for celebration. Now, by contrast, the absence of God, God removing his presence, is a curse. So God assures his people of his presence in in different ways, by travelling with them in the wilderness, uh, the, um, the imagery of the cloud and the fire, He does it by the establishment of the tabernacle, by having a priesthood and and people going to meet him in that tent. He does it by dedicating a city, Jerusalem, to be his place of dwelling and ultimately by becoming one of us through the birth of his son, Emmanuel, God with us. And Psalm 23 is an enthronement song. God is the king amongst his people. And it's especially significant that David, King David, is the author of this psalm. Uh, As he is the human king, all other kings will be compared to. Even Jesus himself is called the son of David. But even David draws all the attention, all of the glory away from himself and towards God. The human king was to be honoured and obeyed, for sure. But the true power... The real authority and glory lies with God himself. He is the king of glory. And the first few verses in the psalm explain the basis for this ultimate power and authority. So let's jump back to the beginning of the psalm with our next heading. Everything belongs to God. Verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. See, unlike the gods of their pagan neighbours, Israel's God not only subdues the chaos of the primordial world, that's the image of the waters here in verse 2, that ancient chaos that existed before the world was formed, but God did more than that. He created it all from scratch. Everything belongs to God 
verse 1. The earth and everything in it. And the basis of that ownership isn't conquest or inheritance or fate, the way a human king might accrue such wealth and influence. No, the reason God owns everything is because God created everything. And so the consequence of that is that we should treat him with the reverence he deserves. Every gift that comes our way, every blessing, our time, our possessions, our relationships, even our very selves belong to him and come from his hand. There is no other ultimate source of blessing because it all comes from him. And because everything comes from God, we're accountable to him for the way that we use his blessings. The parable of the talents in Matthew 25, I'm sure you know it. The master returns to ask his servants what they've done with the resources that is left them. Well, most invested it and the wealth of the master multiplied, but one servant uh, hid those resources, hid his allocation, protected it. And it used to strike me as harsh that the master in the parable uh, then condemns this servant for doing nothing with the wealth he was left. You know, I thought, you know, he's just looked after it, he's protected it. Um, but if the master stands for God in this parable, then that kind of accountability is very appropriate. Because everything belongs to God, he cares about the way we, we use what he's given us. So we've given, been given a great responsibility, and the more we have, the more God has blessed us, the more accountable we are. How do you view the good things in your life? And one approach we could take is that we could treat them with suspicion. I'm not sure I deserve these. I better keep them at arm's length and not enjoy them too much, not get involved too much. On the other hand, we could treat them as something we're owed. I worked hard for everything I have. It's only right that I get to enjoy my stuff and the opportunities that come my way. Well, there's another way we could approach them. Seeing them as good gifts from God, undeserved blessings that are to be enjoyed and used for his glory. Because everything God created is good, made for our delight and enjoyment, those blessings should be used according to his plan and intentions for us. The Pharisees called Jesus a greedy drunk because he didn't fit their idea of a spiritual person. They thought he should be denying himself pleasure, creating a, a safety zone around the law to stay as far away from the appearance of sin as possible. But Jesus understood the difference between observing the law of God and following artificial laws that seem spiritual. He enjoyed the blessings of God with an attitude of thankfulness, knowing that everything is God's. That said, we don't want to be naive, and we know that all creation has been affected by the fall, so that the things God made have the potential to be misused or may harm us in some way. But that doesn't change the fact that it's all God's stuff. 
and we've been given stewardship of its precious creation. So it's good and right for us to enjoy the things God made because Genesis 1 tells us everything he made is good because it has his fingerprints on it. Food, wine, beaches, books, films, pets, cars, exercise, the sunrise, hot air balloons, archery, sexuality, travel, friendships, work. And if we're going to honour him, we'll be mindful of the way we use the things he's made, not carelessly or selfishly or with suspicion, but from an attitude of thankfulness and giving honour to him as the creator. Which brings us to our final point. What kind of worshipper will receive a blessing? Because God is our maker and he created us, he cares about the way that we live our lives. He wants us to approach him in purity, not in falsehood and compromise. Verse 3. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. See, this is the picture of the faithful, true worshipper of God, not just someone who does and says the right things for appearances, but whose inner self is oriented towards God. The faithful, godly person has true integrity of life. Their whole heart, mind, soul and strength is directed towards pleasing God and living in thankful obedience to him. When we think of religion in general or Christianity in particular, it's easy for us to just think of the laws And the rules, do this, don't do this. After all, probably the most famous part of the Old Testament is the Ten Commandments. But being a follower of God is much, much more than that. It's having an inner attitude that trusts him and loves him and the righteous way of life that flows out of that. So this is reflected in the phrase in verse 4, clean hands, the outward behaviour of a person, the things they say and do, and a pure heart, the thoughts and motives they bring to everything they say and do. And the most insidious form of compromise now gets a mention, idolatry, placing something other than God at the centre of your life, trusting, loving Desiring someone or something over and above the God who has a rightful claim on your life, serving a created thing rather than the creator, seeking and desiring the blessing more than the one who blesses. And this can come in many forms, like the love of pleasure. You constantly seek varied and new experiences. It can look like the love of security. You need your finances and income taken care of before you can feel okay. It can look like addiction to relationships, placing our love life or family or friends over our love for God, which then compromises our walk with God. Another translation of verse 4 
prohibits swearing falsely. So the NRSV puts it like this. uh, The ones who may enter God's presence are they who do not swear falsely. We should rather speak the truth and have integrity in all situations, even if telling the truth causes you to be disadvantaged in some way. Isn't that normally when, precisely when we discard the truth, when it would put us at a disadvantage? We should be people who would rather lose, miss out, get in last, rather than lie or twist the truth. So we have a challenge here, but also reassurance. Because verse 5 says that in the bigger picture, integrity of life will be rewarded. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Saviour. Because in the end, living in line with God's plans for us will result in our good rather than our disadvantage. God will ultimately bless us. We won't be left behind. He is our maker, and he has promised that those who seek his kingdom, those who seek after the king of glory and do this with integrity, will not lose their reward. And what are those blessings uh, that are mentioned there exactly? Well, in this age... Before Jesus returns, our blessings are reconciliation with God, forgiveness of sins, the presence and joy of the Spirit. And in the age to come, it will be life forever, abundant life and provision and peace in his eternal kingdom. Now, I should just make a distinction here. We began by talking about Uh, The blessings of creation, the good things in life that God gives to everyone, regardless of their stance with him. But right now we're particularly thinking about the the promised blessings of God that he gives to his people. But God will see to it that we will not end up in a state of shame or desolation, but that we'll be restored and rewarded. This is the hope Jesus clung to in his darkest times on earth. He could have got himself out of a lot of trouble if he'd just answered Pilate a little bit differently during his trial. When Pilate asked him if he was a king, he might have answered no, and he could have been spared the agony of the cross. But instead he answered, John 18, you say that I am a king, In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Jesus lived his whole life in devotion to the truth. He called himself the way, the truth and the life. It would have made no sense for him to lie at this point or at any other time. And this goes back to the integrity of heart that we were talking about earlier, having your outer life match up with your inner life, not being one person on the inside and another on the outside for the sake of appearances, but instead living as a complete, integral person because we have nothing to hide. Now, that's a high bar. That's hard. 
Are you like this? I know I'm not like this all the time. So what is David telling us in this psalm? That you have to be perfect in order to approach God? Well, it appears that way. But who could possibly measure up? Now, one way we could try and resolve this is to say, well, it's okay if I sin sometimes, if I lapse and tell a lie because I wish to protect myself from time to time. And if I'm honest, I care more about my own status and success rather than God's glory and his kingdom. But on the whole, I'm an honest person. I'm trustworthy. Well, that's a bit like eating a big bowl of pasta and saying, well, I've got some pasta sauce on my shirt, but look, some parts aren't dirty. Well, you're not fooling anyone. We know you've got sauce on your shirt. So what's the solution? Well, as we know, Jesus lived the perfect life of the true worshipper of God. His whole life was an unblemished, consistent walk with his father. He had true integrity. His outer life matched his inner life, and there was no idol he served, no God of status or security or wealth that he harboured, which affected his devotion to God. Every statement, every word that he spoke was, a tr- was truthful. It was a true reflection of reality and of his inner thoughts and convictions. And we are called to a life like that, but we fail. We've got sauce down our shirts. So Jesus stands in for us and he lives that life on our behalf. Because Psalm 24 is really a psalm about Jesus. It's him and his long-awaited arrival, which changes everything. This is an arrival much greater than the Avatar sequel or the arrival of a close relative. With the arrival of Jesus, God enters the world as a human being in a human body. He does this as the one who created everything and to whom everything belongs. By becoming one of us, Jesus radically affirms that what he has made is indeed good and he embodies inwardly and outwardly perfect worship. Jesus is the perfect worshipper of God who is eligible to stand in God's presence, who went through great trials in obedience to God, but ultimately received vindication and blessing from God. And he is now in the place of glory, in God's throne room, at his right side, interceding for us, representing us. If you are in Jesus, if you belong to him, you're united to him by faith, then you can take up the words of this psalm as your own because of the perfect worship of our King Jesus. And in response to his goodness and mercy, we worship God in imitation of his son, That's what discipleship means, following in Jesus' footsteps as we seek to live the pattern of life he laid out for us. Because when we live according to that pattern, in the end, God will bless us. He knows our trials and he will reward our faithfulness. And when we stumble, and we will, we can return to God 
seeking his forgiveness and restoration and come into his presence in prayer because Jesus has gone before us. Let's pray now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for all your blessings in this world, uh, for every gift that comes from your hand. And we pray that we would give you thanks and honour you in the way that we use them. And Father, we especially thank you for all your blessings in Jesus. And we ask that we would cling to his perfect worship, that he was able to come into your glorious presence and that with him we stand uh, with you and are able to approach you and call you Father. And we pray this in his wonderful name. Amen.